Today, for a year with hopes and fears, with promise and threat, with holy places and wildernesses, a psalm. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. The 63rd Psalm, it's uh, one of those psalms most of us are familiar with because of the opening lines. Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have read this psalm since I was a child. I had memorized those opening lines since I was in high school. Uh, And I can remember times when I evoked those words to do a prayer in public when I was in high school uh, in the church that I was so involved in back then. Just love the language of it, the earnestness of the expression of desire for God's presence. And every time I read it, uh, every time, and this has always been in my head, and I assumed it would be there when I got to it in this journey that I'm going on through the Psalms. And I arrive at Psalm 63 to expect this, to expect some description of a wild animal in the wilderness, parched, uh, hoping like the heart, you know, that's described in other places, the deer in other places. That's what I expect as the underlying image in this psalm, only because I've read those first lines so many times in that context in my head. And that's not at all where this psalm starts or ends. And it doesn't change the meaning of the psalm. It's fairly direct in our dependence on God and our need for his presence, right? I mean, you can, you can hear that in the first couple of verses. So it's not like I created some heresy by thinking it was about a deer. But it did, it did help me on this journey through uh, to grasp the context in which this was actually being pinned by our author, by David, because the superscript tells us the context in which we should hear it. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, as it says in the ESV. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Well, we even have a couple of options here for what that time in the wilderness of Judah might be for David, because he's there a lot. (laughs) He spends a lot of time in the wilderness. Part of it, when he's fleeing Saul, he's running from him in the wilderness of Judea. He goes south from Saul. He goes toward the Jordan from Saul. He's, you know, running from Saul on a regular basis, right? And uh, looking for different places to hide from him, even among the Philistines, some of whom are associated with this story, by the way, as we'll see in a moment. Anyway, so there's that option. So I could read it in the context of David fleeing Saul. Uh, and we can. I mean, that, that, that doesn't hurt anything at all. 
Uh, or it could be in the context, because he doesn't specify, it could be in the context of David fleeing from Absalom. And I, in looking at the stories, the background to David being in the wilderness of Judea, right? As I'm looking at those stories and accounts of him fleeing Saul and fleeing Absalom, I think this psalm is uh, intended to point us toward his flight from Absalom. Uh, and there are some a couple of obvious reasons for that, but the most important, the reference to God's presence, to his sanctuary, and to appearing before him there, right? So, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. There is something in the reference to the ark there, uh, and David having brought the ark back to Judea, and then ultimately to Jerusalem, and now fleeing, that gives more sense to what's happening. And also even some of the detail in David's departure from Absalom, when David has to leave Jerusalem in a hurry with his people to flee from Absalom, he actually has an encounter with the priests about the ark and whether they should bring it with him or leave it in Jerusalem. Uh, And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. So I'm going to pick, I mean, we could do both. And And again, it wouldn't change the overall meaning of the psalm, but I think the the fine point of the context uh, does head toward the flight from Absalom, coming into Jerusalem to take over in rebellion against David, if you don't remember the story. So in, just to remind you of a little bit of that story, and this is just establishing the context of Psalm 63, Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of, of Judea. If you remember, you know, in, in 2 Samuel 15 is where this takes place, uh, David finds out that Absalom has been winning the hearts of the men of Judea, and just like he's always illustrating as the messianic figure for Israel, uh, he's giving his life to serve the people of Israel. He's their shepherd king. I'm not saying he's perfect, but he's their shepherd king. And as their king, they give their hearts and allegiance to his son just like that because he's willing to sit in the gate and offer them the judgments that they want to hear and So Judea rises up, Judah rises up against David. Israel rises up against David. And they're going to come and and, uh, probably kill him in Jerusalem. And David gets word of it. And so he flees the city. And you'll remember how he uh, goes up the Mount of Olives. So in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. And we're always relating this back to what Jesus does, of course, and remembering the trip that he took out of Jerusalem on the night that he would be betrayed and then crucified on the following Friday, on the next day. Uh, As David goes up the Mount of Olives, we see Christ going up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he'll pray and be betrayed. So David, in this case, is going up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went barefoot and with his head covered in mourning because he's leaving the city of his people and leaving the throne where God has given him the authority to serve his people. And so he's weeping, he's barefoot, his head is covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And all of this time, David is coming to the point where he's going to arrive at the summit of the Mount of Olives, and it's there and this is how it says it in verse 32 of 2 Samuel 15. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped. So here he is coming in his humility in this, in this act of fleeing Jerusalem. 
And as he leaves the, the presence of Jerusalem, he comes to this place where God is worshiped regularly, and that's where, you know, he's, he's, he's got to make a decision about what's going with him, who's going with him, and who's not going with him. And it's there that Hushai <laughs> comes to meet him. There's a long story behind that, and he sends Hushai back to be a counselor who sort of undermines the counsel that would come to uh, Absalom otherwise, and he ends up being rescued basically by that counsel. But just before that part of the story, the priests actually come to David, and they say, we, we, we want to go with you, and here's the ark. We can bring it with you so that you can take the presence of God with you into the wilderness. And David responds to them that he doesn't want to do that. So uh, this is what they say. Uh, they set down the ark until the people had all passed out of the city. And the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he'll bring me back, and he'll let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says... I don't have any pleasure in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. And so he said, you're a seer, go back to the city in peace with your two sons and so on. And we're going to go down the fjords toward the Jordan River and we'll wait there and see what the Lord does with us. So as David is departing the city, he's got to make a decision about whether he's taking, quote, unquote, the presence of God, the ark, with him or not. And he doesn't. He says, I, I'm, I'm not worried about that. If the, if the Lord takes pleasure in me, I'll be able to come back to the ark. I'll be able to come back to the sanctuary in Jerusalem. And so another person, by the way, who comes to him and wants to go with him is Ziba. You'll remember him and the story that goes along with him and uh, the relationship he has with Saul's descendants and so on. The king said to Ziba, why have you brought these fruits and these donkeys and these, all of this, uh, you know, all of this substance? And, and, and so in David asking that question of Ziba, he says, the donkeys are for the king's household. I mean, it's not like super complicated. I'm bringing you stuff to help you, right? But, he, but listen to how he says it. The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness for drink. This is the, this is the point. They're going into a desert wilderness. They're going down to the Jordan River but the whole journey is through this barren wilderness area where they're not going to be provided for and where they're going to thirst. And indeed, a dozen verses later in 2 Samuel 16, in verse 14, it says, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself all the way down in the Jordan. Now, so I would make the argument that this psalm, because I am thirsty and my flesh is fainting for you and I'm in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I have looked on you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, but I know your steadfast love is better than life. I am inclined to say that this is the context in which we're supposed to read that when he's fleeing Absalom. And it, and it has a great impact on us because par partially it doesn't matter which wilderness journey it is, partially because there are so many times that Israel, and remember, David's the Messiah, so he represents all of Israel. So in the Old Testament, he's the Messianic figure. Israel itself is in the wilderness. I mean, none of us have to work to remember. They were there for 40 years in the wilderness, wandering, hungering, and thirsting. In Deuteronomy 8, the image is given in terms of hungering, of having to do without food, 
When it says, and, he, and you'll recognize this, when it says, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The, the point in this is to say it's built into Israel's history that they spend time in the wilderness and that in the wilderness, they discover their hunger and thirst, not just for bread and water, but for God. And in their hungering and thirsting for God are actually satisfied in the very context where they should have been most needy. It's a huge part of building the faith of Israel to be what it's supposed to be. And it's why Jesus faces the same kind of testing period. We just refer to it as the temptation. Satan comes to Jesus and offers him the three temptations. The whole wilderness period that Jesus is in after his baptism, before his ministry, public ministry, begins in earnest with people around him, he goes off to the wilderness, remember, and he's there fasting for 40 days and nights. And the, the, the what's the first answer to the temptation that he gives? It's a quotation of what God had said, what Moses said to the people of Israel when they were when he was describing for them what those 40 years in the wilderness had been about. You didn't you didn't understand what God was doing giving you this manna. You didn't know how he was providing for you, but he wanted to make known to you that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. All of this while God is literally giving them bread from heaven, manna, not to teach them that they could get bread from God, but to teach them that they could rely on his words so that they could believe in him. It's not the manna that provided for them. It's the Lord who provided for them, and he provided manna as well as his word. And so when Jesus gives the answer to the first temptation, oh, just convert, you know, you can just say the word and these stones will be turned to bread. Jesus says, ah, man doesn't live by bread alone. I depend on my Father. I'm trusting him. I'm in this wilderness, and it's bringing me to a faith in him. The whole point of all of those episodes in the wilderness, and it's not just them, it's everyone who represents Israel is in that wilderness, whether it's Abraham or Elijah or any of the stories you can tell, they go through the wilderness. That's a part of Israel's history. When I was in Israel a couple of the times that I was there with groups that were traveling around the country, one of the things the the guides always pointed out was the deep-rooted association of the people of Israel with a time in the desert. Uh, When we would be in the Negev, when we would be down toward the Dead Sea or somewhere out in a desert area, they would say, and this is part of what Israel values, this is what the guides were saying, part of what Israel values in their history, that it gives them a strength and an understanding of their dependence on God, uh, which, which is how we would take it, but on the fact that their circumstances are not what determines who they are as a people. It's not what limits, that is, who they are as a people. And so saying at the beginning of a psalm, that this is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah is a way of saying this is what we're supposed to understand about our relationship with Yahweh, and this is what we're supposed to understand about who we are as the people of God. And as it turns out, it begins in a place that's fairly difficult. So we read the first four verses. It's a short psalm. 
So it's just uh, 11 verses, 12 if you count the superscript, but 11 as we'll go through it. So the first four verses are all describing the sense of longing and what comes out of it. Longing meaning there's something lacking. I don't have what I need. And so what's being described, and this is, you know, David, he's probably writing it, or at least it's in his head, while this is going on with Absalom. So he's down at the Jordan River, and he's been wandering through the wilderness, and his people would have been thirsty if somebody hadn't provided for them, but they have. And now they know they don't have all the abundance of Jerusalem, but in the wilderness, where they are longing, where they have need, they still understand these things that are most fundamental to who they are. And David illustrated that by saying, no, take the, same, take the, take the ark back to Jerusalem. I'll come back there to worship the Lord. And if Yahweh doesn't want me, then it doesn't matter whether the ark comes with me or not. So here we start in verse one. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Now I hear this not as an animal panting in the wilderness just for a drink of water somewhere. I hear it as David, who's been betrayed by his people, and then his own God has now turned him out of the city that his God had given him. And he's in the wilderness without anything, and he's saying, God, you're my God. Earnestly, I seek you in this empty wilderness. My soul thirsts for you. And he uses this, the, the reference to the soul is ubiquitous in the psalm. Uh, in every section, we're going to be appealing back to it. I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. These are obvious analogies that he could make using thirst and hunger in the wilderness as the illustration. I wish I was somewhere where I had a banquet feast, but that's just really illustrative of the fact that I wish my soul were somewhere where I could just be with God in abundance and not wonder about his favor on my life. And so he says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in, and this is the illustrative part, it's where he literally is, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And then look at what he says in the second verse, because in the first verse, he's obviously lacking the presence of God. He's lacking the things that he desires. My soul thirsts, my flesh faints. I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water, there is no you, there is no a, a, a provision or abundance. Now, I'm saying all of that illustratively, right? I mean, we know he knows God's there. That's the rest of the psalm. That's what this is about. Verse 2, he says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Whether the tabernacle was set up on the Mount of Olives or at Shiloh or at one of the other places, or if it's back in Jerusalem at this point where he's returned the ark to Jerusalem, However he's describing it, he's describing the opportunity that he's had in the past, not in this moment. He says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He remembers what it was like to be in the presence of God. And that memory is enough for him to recognize God's faithfulness. And I mean by that, God's covenant mercy, God's steadfastness, because God has made promises to him, some of which we'll express in later Psalms. Psalm 89, for instance, is the most famous. But God has made promises to him that, you know, David hasn't forgotten. And he's looking at his current circumstance and saying, I know where I am. I have to thirst for your presence, but I also remember where I didn't thirst. For it. 
because I had it. I was in your sanctuary, and I saw your power and glory. So, because your steadfast love is better than the vicissitudes of life, my lips will praise you. Now he's got these parts of him that can contribute back to the circumstance. They're illustrative only. My lips shall praise you. It's just using an illustration to say, I'm going to praise you. And this part of me is going to praise you. And uh, the idea of synecdoche, you know, this part representing the whole is also present in the fourth verse. So I'll bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. And in lifting up his hands, he's lifting up his soul before God. This is what I offer back to you because I know that your faithfulness persists. And I know your faithfulness persists because I remember being in your presence. I remember what your power and glory are like. I saw them in your sanctuary. So even out here in the wilderness where I lack those things immediately, the, the, at least the immediate obviousness of those things, I recall your faithfulness and therefore my praise will persist, just like I know your faithfulness persists. So in the first four verses, the, this, and this is, this is what it means to be in the wilderness. This is the point. In the first four verses, and it's not immediately about us. It's about the Messiah. It's about David. This is David when he was in the wilderness of Judea, right? When the Messiah longs for God's presence, when the Messiah lacks God's presence in some way, when the Messiah is longing for God's presence, he recalls God's presence. That is, the longing itself is part of recalling it. I, I wish I were in the sanctuary. Oh, why do you wish that? Because you remember what it was like when you were there. That's the point. It's part of the thing all of us do face when we're in the wilderness, because when we are out there doing without, longing and lacking all at the same time, Sometimes we forget that that longing and lacking is also a reminder of when we didn't long for it and lack it, when it was present. I say it all the time about it's sort of Epicurean. Philosophically, it's Epicurean in its nature, uh, not contemporary Epicureanism, you know, the ancient form of philosophical Epicureanism, that, that the reality is we, when, whenever we have something that we want, we also carry with it the anxiety that we're going to lose it. That's part of being human. That's just how we live our lives. And I've said at many funerals, the grief that people are facing in the loss of their loved one is commensurate with the blessing, the privilege that they had of the relationship that they enjoyed during that lifetime. That's the nature of the relationship. The greater it is, then obviously the greater the loss and so the same thing in the wilderness for the people of God and for, in this case, the Messiah, when the Messiah is longing for, when the Messiah is praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's prayed in the context of saying, because I know what it's like when you are completely with me. I understand your power and your glory. So when the Messiah longs for God's presence, he's also recalling God's presence. And at the same time, he's volitionally choosing to recall that presence. So here I am out in the wilderness, but I remember, and I'm thinking about it. I'm dwelling on 
What was it like back when I was in your sanctuary, when I beheld your power and your glory? Something probably good for any of us to keep in mind for how we endure those moments when it seems that God has turned his back on us in some way or he has sent us out of his holy city. So when the Messiah longs for God's presence, he recalls it. I'd put that with the first four verses. Then there's verses five through eight, the, the next set of four verses, right? So when the Messiah, and this one is, when, I, I'll just tell you this one ahead of time. When the, when the Messiah recalls God's presence, there's something that comes from that, right? There's a satisfaction that comes from that. And so that's exactly what we're going to find here. So my soul, he says in verse five, will be satisfied. And again, you know, what you're always looking for in Psalms, their, their poems, is the parallelism. How are they aligned so that we can recognize the contrast or the comparison between two different sections, right? And so the first verse opened with, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And how does the second section begin? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So in the first section, I'm doing without, but I I remember what it was like to be in the presence of his power and glory, and therefore I'm able to praise him with my lips. But in this context, my soul's not lacking at all because now, because the Messiah recalls God's presence, He's also satisfied by that presence. He's satisfied in some ways just by recalling God's presence because that reminds him that God is present, right? So my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So I'm back to you know what's happening with my lips, the synecdoche for who I am. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, So we have all of these statements that David's making about being out in the wilderness, and this time the imagery has changed a little bit. It's less about thirst, and again, it also had to do with food, but it was mostly about thirst in the first section. In the second section, it's mostly about food, and then it's not just about being in the wilderness. It's about being in the nighttime, and you know, we don't we don't emphasize this as much, but in the Psalms that have come before this, the, the typical image has been that in the daytime, there's abundance and light and safety and security. And that's, and in their day, I mean, it really made a difference. And it does in ours too. It matters whether you're going out at night or going out in the day. And for David fleeing Absalom, obviously it makes a huge difference that he's out in the wilderness in the middle of the night to boot. And it, I know the emphasis is not on the wilderness at this point in verses five through eight, but I don't think that's absent from it because the superscript was for the whole Psalm. David is writing this while he's in the wilderness of Judea or about the time that he was in the wilderness of Judea. So in that wilderness for him to say, when I remember you, I'm still, I'm praising you. I have joyful lips. I'm satisfied as with fat and rich food when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So overnight, when others are insecure and don't have safety, I remember you, and I remember you on my bed. And again, if this was the only direction the psalm went, like if 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 what he's going to say in verse 9 wasn't going to follow about others going down into the depths of the earth, then I wouldn't dwell on this as much. But the fact that David is describing in, in a wilderness psalm, lying down on a bed, I'm not saying he didn't have a bed. I'm sure he's the king. I'm sure he's with his 
uh, entourage, and they're carrying a tent, and he's sleeping on a bed, literally. But the point for him isn't that it had to be literal. The point is that he has a place to lie down, and he has a place to wake up. And he's able in the watches of the night when he's fleeing from his throne city for his life, he's able to meditate on Yahweh in the watches of the night. Why? Because you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul, we're back to his soul, clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So in verses five through eight, he starts out by saying, my soul has abundance because when the Messiah recalls God's presence, he's satisfied by God's presence. And so he, he opens up with praise. So I meditate, I, remember, I, I offer praise to you with joyful lips. I remember you on my bed. My memory persists about you, despite the fact that now I'm not in the sanctuary beholding the power and presence of God. I'm in a bed in the watches of the night fleeing for my life. And yet I remember you and your presence in the sanctuary. And because of that, I'm satisfied by that. And so I offer joyful praise to you in response. And my memory hangs in there. It persists despite the context in which I find myself. Because you have been my help. And it's in the shadow of your wings that I sing for joy. So his his praise is persisting as well. He's continuing to offer thanks to God and praise to God because he knows he's underneath the shadow of God's wings. God is protecting him. This is how the Lord describes what he did for Israel when he took them out of Egypt. I mean, he does it even later in the book of Hosea. He does it again. They appeal to this imagery all of the time. The Lord says to them through Isaiah that he leads them out, and he's like a, an eagle protecting his young. And in the same way, in, in the Pentateuch, he describes to them originally, I'm taking you out of Egypt, and I'm going to cover you under my wings so that you're safe there. This imagery that God is protecting his people even while they're in the wilderness is part of the imagery that David is portraying when he says, I I go out into the middle of the night when everyone else would be in danger, and I lie down on my bed, and in the watches of the night, I offer thanks to you that you're the one who's covering me with your wings. And while everyone else would live in fear in this moment, and maybe there's legitimate fear to be had, he doesn't know if he's going to make it back or not. He doesn't even know if he's returning to Jerusalem. He hasn't said to anyone, oh, God will bring me back. I'm definitely the man. There's no way Absalom's taking the throne. He hasn't done that at all. He leaves and leaves it in God's hands. And he is able to say to God, hey, you're the one with a wing that covers me. So I find my safety in you. So when the Messiah is longing for God's presence because he's leaving the city and going out into the wilderness, he recalls that presence. And when the Messiah recalls that presence, he's satisfied by it. It's enough. In the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So then I have three verses left. Listen to these. They go completely, the, you know, the, the completely opposite direction. Uh, it is now an imprecatory prayer, basically. But those who seek to destroy my life, this is verse 9, shall go down into the depths of the earth. I'll describe more of that in a moment. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. 
all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of all liars will be stopped. So you can hear, even in the moment when you think, okay, he's gone back to the good side, he goes back to those mouths that are going to be stopped because they're the mouths that are chasing him. They're pursuing him. So what happens in this act of judgment, you know, that David describes about the people who are chasing him is this. And, what, you know, what, what happens also in this section is that you have a clean and stark separation of the Messiah and the people of God from those who are going to be judged by that same God. Those who seek to destroy my, and this is the word soul again. I said that word keeps coming back in every section. Those who seek to destroy my life. So remember in, in, in the first verse, uh, as we're reading it, in the first verse, meaning in English, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. So what David is seeking in his soul is Yahweh. That's all he wants. In verse 5, we were reminded of that. My soul will be satisfied, basically, with you, is where he ends up going, as with fat and rich food and so on, because I meditate on you in the watches of the night. When he ends that section in verse 8, he says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But in verse 9, the contrast is those who seek to destroy his soul. They're not seeking Yahweh. They're not seeking the blessing of God. They're not seeking anything outside of his soul. They want to destroy him. His soul is seeking God. Now, you can, you can just sort of see where that's going to go. Nowhere good, right? It's the, my, my favorite illustration or example, it's not an illustration, my favorite example of this contrast between the enemies and then the people of God, those who are against God and those who are, uh, are the people of God, uh, is in Acts 4. And I've, I've, I've uh, used this uh, story so many times because it's so pivotal, I think, in the book of Acts and in the life of the early church. Uh, when, the, when the apostles are told not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore and uh, the, they bring Peter before the council and they, they ask him, what, who on earth gave him the authority to do the things that he's doing, you know? And Peter says, well, if you're asking how we healed this man, if it was by us, I mean, well, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and it's by his power that this man stands before you whole. I mean, what are you going to do? Question, question him and you killed him, but he raised from the dead. What did, did you think he couldn't raise a man to walk again? Basically is what Peter's saying. And they're so bumfuzzled, I'll say, by what Peter says. They don't know what to do with it. So they put the disciples out. They put them out of the council. And it says they take counsel among themselves because they don't have anybody else to talk to. They just talk to themselves. And when they send them away and tell them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore, they go back to the church. The apostles go back to the church and they tell the church what happened. And who does the church take counsel with? Yahweh. <laughs> they go to God. They lifted up their voice together to God, and they start quoting psalms, by the way, uh, to the Lord for, for their rescue. David is doing exactly the same thing. Lord, I'm seeking you. I'm looking for my help from you. But those who are against him are only seeking him. They just want to destroy him. They don't have anywhere else to turn, so they're going to fight against him. Those who seek to destroy my soul. Now, what happens to David? when he descends, because he, remember, the image here is that he leaves Jerusalem, he, so he goes down into the Valley of Kidron, and he goes up onto the ascent of the Mount of Olives and climbs right to the peak of it, 
and then goes over the other side to take the long, steep descent down to the Jordan River, basically toward Jericho. And so he's going through the wilderness, going down the whole way until he arrives at the very bottom at the Jordan River. It's all been down, but down and down and down from, again, and this is not just loose imagery, in the imagery that's used in the Old Testament and that, as I understand it, is used to this day, including by people who've lived there and told this to me, that when you go to Jerusalem, you ascend to Jerusalem. And you can see it. I mean, when you're around it, it's the, it's the way up. You go up to Jerusalem. So it's a major image here to say that David has descended into the depths when he left Jerusalem. But listen to how he descends. Going back up into verses 5 through 8, he goes all the way down into this place where he's parched and barren and hungering, but he remembers, and in remembering, he's satisfied and filled and joyful. And where does he end up? On a bed meditating in the watches of the night under the shadow of God's wing protected. I'm okay because I know your hand is holding me up. It's exactly how he says it in verse eight. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. But what happens to the people who are not clinging to God, but seeking David's soul, seeking the Messiah's soul so that they can destroy him and take the power for themselves. And in trying to exalt themselves, they're chasing him down into this pit where they want him to have to stay. But those who seek to destroy my life, the life that's on its bed, meditating on you in the shadow of your wing, being held up by your hand, it's as if God's hand is his bed. Those who seek to destroy my life they're not just going to go down the descent of the Mount of Olives. They're not just going to go down into the Valley of Kidron. They're not just going to go down to the Jordan River. They're going to go down into the depths of the earth. I knew, David is saying, that as I descended and as I faced the wilderness, as I faced thirst, that you would give me drink. I knew that you would give me shelter. I knew that you would put your hand out and catch me in the descent, and you did. And so I lie here on my bed with your right hand upholding me, and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. And those who are chasing me, I'm not worried about them because I know the ones who seek to destroy my life, they'll go down into the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the thing that doesn't have power over me because your right hand upholds me. The shadow of your wings protects me. You keep me safe in the shelter that you've provided for me this night. But they will be given over to the power of the sword. They will be a portion for jackals. You cover me under the shadow of your wing, but they will be exposed when the jackals show up to devour them and tear them to pieces. The king, where will he be? Verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, remember this. So on the one side, there's the praise that's coming out of the mouth of David or of the king or of any who swear by him, and that's our invitation into the psalm. So we find our hope in the one, the one Messiah, because we certainly haven't succeeded at this any more than Israel did when they were in the wilderness, as if they were some kind of faithful while they were in the wilderness. Have mercy. The, the one that was faithful in the wilderness was God, and the one who's faithful in the wilderness with, with, 
with uh, uh, in this psalm is David. The, mess, the Messiah is the one who's faithful. And we find our shelter because he found his shelter. And so we're safe in him. And so he says, all who swear by him shall exult. Why? Because God is protecting his Messiah. God protects his one. He blesses his one. Even from the mouths of the people who are assaulting or attacking him. That is, for the mouths of all liars will be stopped. And what are those liars doing? They're attacking David. Oh, well, you know, he wouldn't give you the judgment you want, but I'll give it to you, Absalom says. And he gets all the men of, of Judah to, to, and Israel to favor him over David. And in all of that, David doesn't win any battles. He doesn't win any arguments. Instead, God protects him with his wing. So we, we know that what sets us apart from others is that even in the wilderness, I mean, think about the people who traveled there with David, including uh, Itai, the Gittite, right? When he comes, David says to him, you're a foreigner. You don't need to go with me. And Itai says, ah, yeah, I'm going with you because wherever you go, I'm going to go because you've received me. And because you received me, you took me in as your guest. I'm not leaving you. I'm staying with you. Wherever you are, that's where I'm going to find my blessings. And in that same way, we go with the Messiah. And wherever he goes, that's where we're going to be blessed. So what sets us apart from others is that even when we're in the wilderness, we're with the Messiah. <laughs> so I, I did a bike ride around. I, I ride around the lake on a regular basis. You've heard me talk about cycling before if you've listened to any of the other episodes from this podcast, I probably mentioned it. I was riding across, I was riding around the lake one day and there was hardly anybody there. I mean, hardly anyone, which you would think would tell me, hmm, there's some reason not to ride today, but I rode. And when, sure enough, I'm crossing this bridge that covers a, a pretty significant part of the lake. And, uh, and, and as I'm crossing the bridge, it's not super narrow, but you know, it's a walking bridge. And so it's, 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 uh, you have to be cautious if there are people on it. Well, there's nobody around the lake. So I'm kind of flying along and I come over the crest of the bridge. Uh, it's got a pretty good arc to it. I come over the crest of the bridge and I see, oh, there's a family down there. Great. Okay. So I'm going to have to slow down. So I do, I slow down to be cautious, but I also start ringing the bell. I've got a little bell on my, it's a, it's a, it's a manly bell, but it doesn't sound like it. Right. Ding. Anyway, but it gets everybody's attention. They can hear it. And they know, you know, that, that somebody's coming. So I see, it's like the worst thing you can possibly see when you're riding a bike. I see it's a, a dad and a mom and a little kid. The little kid's six years old. I have a six-year-old grandchild. I love six-year-old grandchildren. That's great. But, you know, this one's not mine. And I don't know what it's going to do, it. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it's going to, I don't even remember whether it was a boy or a girl. I just, I just remember seeing a little kid, and so that makes you nervous. So I see that there's a little child on one side uh, with uh, one parent or the other, and the dad is on the other side. He's across the bridge from the child, right? So I ring my bell, you know, ding, ding, got plenty of time. There's a bike coming. Stay out of the way. Don't get in front of the bike, right? I'm not flying. I'm, I'm being somewhat cautious at this point because you just can't count on what's going to happen. And what happens is exactly what I would expect, uh, which is the dad turns around, sees that I'm coming, and calls the kid's name. Yeah, all he's trying to do is say, hey, notice there's a bike coming. Be safe, right? That's what he wants to say. But instead, the kid hears his name from his dad. What do you think he does? Or she, whoever it was. They dart across the bridge. I mean, five feet in front of my bike. Like, oh, I got to run to dad right now. This is the only place I'm going to be safe. It was the 
worst possible thing this child could could have done. And so we we do this all the time. We do exactly the same. By the way, of course, I was going slow to begin with and cautious. I did not strike the child with my bike or anything like that. Everything turned out fine. I even waved at them to say, love the fact that you have a young family. I did not say in my outside voice, and that was a terrible job of parenting. You should be smarter next time. I didn't say that in an outside voice at all. We do exactly the same thing as the child who's standing there, right? We're, we're alone. We're standing on, we're standing right, right where we're safe, right where God knows where we are and can see us. And God may even call our name there and say, hey, I'm getting your attention here. And what we do is think, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to solve this problem. I got I to gotta be somewhere else. I got to get over this disease. I got to get out of this crisis. I got to eliminate this pressure. I got to whatever it is. And we start to run to the other side right in front of all the temptations, dangers, I don't know, whatever it is that's coming our way. Instead of just staying right where we need to be, where our faith in that moment, in that place is all we need in order to be safe. If that if that child had heard his or her father's voice and just said to themselves, ah, oh, I can hear his voice. I know it's okay. I'll even turn around and look and just see. I see. There's my father. Everything's okay. Instead of trying to run back and solve the problem himself. And David doesn't run back to Jerusalem. David's going down further into the wilderness to wait and see how God is going to rescue him. You can understand what I'm saying. This is the reality. The difference between being the people of God, being someone who belongs to him and anyone else, is that even when we're outcast, even when we're on the, uh, on the outs, even when we can't sense his presence at all, we're still under his wings. No matter where we go, the Messiah has been there and further. And so my encouragement to you for the year is that you know there are going to be ups, there are going to be downs, there are going to be times in Jerusalem, and there are going to be times out in the, the wilderness of Judea. And in all of those times, remembering God's presence and faithfulness and the shadow of his wings is the way we find our encouragement and peace and comfort. Because just like the Messiah, when the Messiah longed for God's presence, he recalled it. And when he recalled God's presence, he was satisfied by it. And he knew that because he had God's presence, he didn't have to worry about anything else. That's where I want us to be during this year. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.